Um, that is the end of our announcements, but I'm going to read our scripture passage for the day, and I would encourage you to follow along with us either in your own Bibles or there's black Bibles around the room, um, just because I am a person that gets super frustrated when somebody starts reading before I get to the page. It is on page 901 in those black Bibles, so that's a quick flip for you. This is 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except through the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, through many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in each body, each one of them as he, cho as he chose. If all were a singular, singular member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need for you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, and there may be no division in the body, but that the members may, be, but the, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, 
then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I gave away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. Uh, Trevor, would you come up and I'll pray for you? Father, we thank you. We thank you for being uh, the perfect father, giving us the perfect example of love. As I read this, my heart is just wooed to you once again um, and also saddened at just the reality that we don't love each other like you want us to love each other. So Lord, would we all have ears and hearts to hear you today? Uh, Would we be corrected? Would we be encouraged? Spirit, would you do this work in our hearts? Would you guide us, Lord, into uh, loving each other? Uh, Would this church be uh, just a beacon on a hill of your love um, for a really hurting uh, world out there, a broken world? Lord, we cannot do this in our own strength. Would you do it in us? Pray for Trevor as he preaches your word today, Lord. Would you um, just empower him and embolden him, give him words for us, Lord? Thank you for your scriptures. Amen. Amen. Hey, would you guys give Whitney a round of applause? That was a lot of words. I should have checked the word count, but I'm pretty sure that was like two, like 2,500 words right there. Um, good morning. So real, two really fast things before we jump into the sermon. First, if you're interested in the women of the word, the, the ladies that are going to get together four times throughout the summer, books are underneath both speakers. Even if you're just curious, grab one. They're our gift to you. Take, flip through it, see if it's something that you're interested in, trying to squeeze in at least once or twice throughout the summertime. Um, and we'll get more details online for when those future dates will be, but the first one obviously will be next Sunday, the 21st here at 6 p.m. Second thing is we are continuing. This is our fifth week of our Strong Church 
church sermon series. So these are workbooks that we've designed for you to kind of track along. So if you're new to the series, um, over there by that QR code on the wall, there is a little white basket with a bunch of these. Uh, If you are curious, today we are on week five, which is page 12. Now, before you look at that too closely, I just want to tee up today's teaching uh, by looking at uh, this really interesting online tool that Google has. Google has this this, uh, charting ability uh, called the Ngram Viewer, Ngram Viewer. Basically, what they do is any book or piece of literature that's ever been scanned and put into the Google database ever, they scan and, and look at any word you want. You can search and you can find out the popularity and the use of that word in any literature, any writing since the early 1800s. Just bonkers that you can just type in real fast, bonkers, and then see how frequently it's been used. Um, but what's interesting about this is you can watch the development of um, not only language, but societal experiences. When we start talking about stuff, it's because we're experiencing stuff. Um, I looked up the word loneliness last week, and this is what I found. This is the trend of the human discussion on loneliness since the year 1800. Now, that's interesting. Obviously, there's a rise, but notice this. There's just as much increase from the year 1800 to 1995 as there is from 1995 to 2019. Would you show that next slide? The human experience and conversation of loneliness has doubled since the late 1990s, as much as the 200 years prior. Now, this isn't scientific. I'm, I'm not like an expert on this. It's not like I've spent uh, hundreds of thousand dollars researching this. But I do know someone who has. His name is the U.S. Surgeon General. Uh, on May 1st, he released an advisory report um, for a, spanning the U.S., and his report was titled this, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. The subtitle was, The Healing Effects of Social Connection and Community. And I would like to read to you uh, the introductory letter from the U.S. Surgeon General himself, uh, a man named Dr. Vivek Murthy. He writes this. uh, Bear with me. This is about a page of his writing. When I first took office as Surgeon General in 2014, I didn't view loneliness as a public health concern. But that was before I embarked on a cross-country listening tour where I heard stories from my fellow Americans that surprised me. People began to tell me they felt isolated, invisible, and insignificant. Even when they could not put their finger on the word lonely, time and time again, people of all ages and socioeconomic backgrounds from every corner of the country would tell me, I have to shoulder all of life's burdens by myself. Or, if I disappear tomorrow, no one will even notice. It was a light bulb moment for me. Social disconnection was far more common than I had realized. In the scientific literature, I found confirmation of what I was hearing. In recent years, about one in two adults in America reported experiencing loneliness. And that was before the COVID-19 pandemic cut off so many of us from friends, loved ones, support systems, exacerbating loneliness and isolation. Loneliness is far more than just a bad feeling. It harms both individual and societal health. It's associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. The mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day, and even greater than that associated with obesity and physical inactivity. 
And the harmful consequences of a society that lacks social connection can be felt in our schools, in our workplaces, our civic organizations, where performance, productivity, and engagement are diminished. Now, given the profound consequences of loneliness and isolation, we have an opportunity and an obligation to make the same investments in addressing social connection that we've made in addressing tobacco use, obesity, and the addiction crisis. This Surgeon General's advisory shows us how to build more connected lives and a more connected society. If we fail to do so, we will pay an ever-increasing price in the form of our individual and collective health and well-being. We will continue to splinter and divide until we can no longer stand as a community or a country. Instead of coming together to take on the great challenges before us, we will further retreat to our corners, angry, sick, and alone. We are called to build a movement to mend the social fabric of our nation, and it will take all of us, individuals and families, schools, workplaces, healthcare, public health systems, technology companies, governments, faith organizations, and communities working together to destigmatize loneliness and change our cultural and policy response to it. It will require reimagining the structures, policies, and programs that shape a community to best support the development of healthy relationships. Each of us can start now in our own lives by strengthening our connections and relationships. Our individual relationships are an untapped resource, a source of healing, hiding in plain sight. They can help us live healthier, more productive, and more fulfilled lives. Answer the phone call from a friend. Make time to share a meal. Listen without the distraction of your phone. Perform an act of service. Express yourself authentically. The keys to human connection are simple, but extraordinarily powerful. Loneliness and isolation represent profound threats to our health and well-being, but we have the power to respond by taking small steps every day to strengthen our relationships and by supporting community efforts to rebuild social connection, we can raise to meet this moment together. We can build lives and communities that are healthier and happier, and we can ensure our country and the world are better poised than ever to take on the challenges that lay ahead. Our future depends on what we do today. Signed, Dr. Vivek Murthy. Now, this Surgeon General might not know it yet, but he is yearning for the kingdom of God. We began this sermon series week one by the the crystal clear point that the church does not make the gospel. This isn't a group of people that get together and decide on something. This is the gospel, God's message for humanity that gathers and creates and sustains the church, a social communal connection. The gospel creates social communal connection. 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth came teaching this. The greatest need of humanity is the removal of loneliness. The greatest need of humanity is restored relationship with God and other human beings. Jesus gave his life as the son of God to make anyone who would follow him, sons and daughters in the family, the united social network of the kingdom of God. So now we as Christians are siblings of one another. He addresses loneliness with family. What that means is God has designed the local church to be the single most powerful human experience of his kingdom. His design is that the local church would embody genuine love and social belonging, the pinnacle of human society as the family of God. 
the solution to the world's loneliness. Forgiveness, grace, restored relationship, and family. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, for many of us, when it comes to the local church especially, this has not been our experience, right? I am, like, sorry for that. It grieves me. It saddens me. But as I feel that and I've experienced some of that, I also realize our experiences cannot overrule God's design. His gospel makes the church. So the wrong response to bad church is abandoning God's design. The right response to bad church is doubling down on living God's design well. Paul is addressing this exact thing in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. He wrote 1 Corinthians to a dysfunctional, hurtful, messy local church. And it was because Paul was devoted to his spiritual brothers and sisters that he was also devoted to them experiencing God's design well. So this is my hope today for teaching out of 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. So here are some of the things that were happening in the Corinthian church that Paul was writing towards, okay, out of 12 and 13. So first off, there were a couple of different divisions in the church, and then they were misapplying the gospel, and it was creating disunity and church hurt, hurt feelings, trumping one another. Now, one of the things that was creating this division and this hurt was their misunderstanding and misuse of spiritual gifts and spiritual experiences, okay? So they were kind of doing two things in that spiritual gift, spiritual experience arena. First, they were viewing the purpose of their gatherings, much like what we are doing today. They, they thought the main purpose was to come and get a spiritual high, to get a great spiritual experience. That's why we get together. Or it was so that I get platform. I get a, get, put a microphone on my face and tell people what I think is important. So they were misusing that. And more, that became more important to them than how they were affecting the people around them. More important to how they were affecting them was what experiences they were getting and what platforms they were getting. Second thing they were doing is their gifts and their experiences were making them prideful. Or their lack of spiritual gifts and experiences was filling them with shame. It was, look at how gifted I am. Look at all the cool things I can do. You want to see me speak in tongues? Bam! And so they were like dropping it as performances. Or, well, I don't speak in tongues. I don't prophesy. I must not be, the Holy Spirit must not be in me. I must be a weak, invaluable Christian. And so they were trumping themselves up or, or bringing themselves low out of a misunderstanding. And this was not building the church up in love, but it was hurting people. Importantly, experiences and gifts of the Spirit are not trophies, they're tools. They're, trophy, they're not trophies, they're tools for building up the church through love. Now, the Corinthian church had the tools, but they had missed the whole point. And so today, might surprise you, we're actually not talking about spiritual gifts. We're talking about the main point underneath the conversation about spiritual gifts, which I believe is Paul's main purpose for this section. I believe Paul's main purpose in this section was this, that God designed the local church to be the single most powerful human experience of the kingdom of God by embodying genuine love and social belonging as the family of God. 
So here's what to expect for the rest of today. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to kind of work and exposit my way through 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, kind of in real time, read paragraph, give you a little bit of explanation. And then at the end, I'm just going to give real quick high-level review. If I could just give a couple minutes of clarity. Then I'll give you a few minutes of individual reflection, and then I'll come back up and I'll address the personal discipleship plan about this topic uh, on page 26. And I'll just do a couple minutes on that, and then I'll let you guys have between five and 10 minutes of community conversation, discussing this together. And then we'll, we'll take communion together and end our day. So that's what to expect. Would you pray with me as we get into God's word? Spirit of God, um, we believe you move and move powerfully. And we want to, um, like the Corinthian church, learn from you. What is it that you want the scriptures to illuminate to us so that we embody your family, a powerful experience of love in the kingdom of God above self-glorification or platforming, whatever that might be. So help us see what your main message is and help us be transformed by you. Amen. All right. Uh, If you're not there already, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul opens this way. He says, now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led away to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that nobody speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So, and then he Uh, Really, all he's saying is he's saying you were led astray in the past, right? You were led astray to believe in pieces of wood, stone, metal, whatever. And now the Corinthians church is experiencing there's people inside the church misusing spiritual experiences and people outside of the church misusing spiritual experiences through witchcraft, sorcery, whatever. And he's saying, look, you've been led astray before. It's probably going to happen again. So I I want you to know, pay attention to the content of the message and the fruit of the person's life. Here's how you judge. Is that person fixed on the gospel and proclaiming Jesus as Lord? That's how you know. And then he continues in verse four. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and anyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Now, you might here be looking at Paul opening up categories of spiritual service. It's likely much less than that. He's like, yeah, sure, gifts, but it's the same spirit. Yeah, sure, service, but it's the same spirit. Yeah, sure, activity, same spirit, you guys. That's his main point. And so he's saying that regardless of the various presentations of the spirit's empowerment, all of it is aligned around Jesus as Lord. All of it is aligned around building faith in him None of it is for show, none of it's for self-gratification, none of it's for lording over others. Verse 7, it's given, excuse me, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the building of the church. He continues, verse 8. Now, for to one is given the Spirit, through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, another, faith, by the working of the same Spirit, to another, gifts of healing, by the one Spirit, to another, the working of miracles, another prophecy, another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. But remember, all of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Again, all the diverse ways the spirit of God is working in his people, he's enabling them, developing them, empowering them, and all that diversity is from the generosity of God through 
the single purpose spirit for the common good, the building of the church. Single purpose spirit, giving to each person as he chooses. And then Paul continues into verse 12. And this is where he like dives into the meat of his message. And he gives this incredibly powerful, if you take the time to reflect on it, this incredibly powerful word picture explaining the unity and the spiritual reality of the church through one spirit. Verse 12, just as the body, the human body is one, but has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jew, Greek, slave free, all of you, all were made to drink of one spirit. You guys remember a couple weeks ago, we, we looked at the sacraments of baptism and communion. The sacraments, again, we kind of talked about were an external display of a spiritual reality. So here, what Paul's getting at is if taken with faith and sincerity, what's actually happening in those sacraments is we're participating and receiving the work of the Spirit. And this work of the Spirit is reorienting our hearts, is empowering us, and he's making us one body. Now, if that's a little bit loose to grasp, think of it this way. The reason we are one body is because we are all sharing one principle of life, seeking first the kingdom of God, if you remember last week. We are all single-hearted for the kingdom of God through the spirit of God working in us. We're all animated and directed by one spirit. Therefore, we are one body, one moving force among us, one unifying set of values among us. Paul continues, verse 14, hang with me. Now he's really starting to get into how, does, how do the like, human relationships of this body work out in real time, right? Here we go. Verse 14, for the body doesn't consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body that would not make it any less a part of the body. Now, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. A quick pause. What Paul's addressing is people in a local church body who are believing, I'm not valuable. I don't belong. I'm a black sheep. I'm not a whatever. I'm not a, a servant. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a kid's teacher. I'm not whatever. I'm not like this person. And we've all felt this. But if we receive Paul's encouragement here, that means we are all, every one of us, baptized into one body through one spirit, part of Christ's body. But not only that, not only a part of the body, an integral part of the body, not only just a part of the body, but a wanted part of the body, a valuable part of the body, a gifted part of the body, a called and empowered part of the body. Every single one of us, regardless of how we stack up in our minds against the people or the gifts around us. Now, Paul is addressing here, some of us have different gifts. Some of us have different quantities of gifts. That's fine because all of them are from a generous, inclusive, and loving God, a loving Father. 
And he's arranged each one as he chose. He's acknowledging that. But remember, God as Father does not base his attention to you or his affection for you on your gifting. That's why we have safety with a variety of gifting. Also, he's not basing how much he gifts you off of his affection for you. So we have the safety of a diversity of gifts and presence of gifts and personality because all of them are from a loving father who gave his life for us. So our goal is not to compare ourselves to other members, but to fully live out of who he has made you to be, doing what he has made you to do, all else to the side. Pick up with me verse 19. Now, if all were a single member or just one, then where would the whole body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts don't require. But God has so composed the body, notice, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there might be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, verse 27, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. If I was going to summarize and unpack that a little bit, he's simply saying one part of a body is not a body. It's a part of a body. A body is made up of many parts. And in order for you and I to experience life as Jesus's body, we need to integrate fully and wholeheartedly into life with the other parts. Otherwise, we can't experience that we are a body if we are disintegrated and detached. Paul's also saying that variety and diversity of the members of the body is exactly what makes it beautiful and functional. A body made entirely out of eyes or a hand would be a monster. A body made entirely out of Trevor's would be a monster. You... As black sheepish as you might feel, bring beauty and wholeness and completeness to the body of the Savior. Mind-blowing stuff. Now, last week on Simplicity, we were taught that we were made finite, that our finiteness, our limitedness as human beings is actually a gift because it means we need. I'm not capable of everything, which means I need something beyond me. I need to reach out to the people around me, and to God himself for help. Here Paul again is reteaching us that it is healthy as a body and it is best in the way of Jesus to need one another. You can't look at anyone in this room and say, I don't need you. What kind of a body would that be? It also means even the weakest member has something to offer you specifically. And what a lovely community this is. You know, some of us already are getting kind of hung up on, well, maybe I'm the weakest one, or maybe I'm the best one. We're already kind of going there. We're like the Corinthian church. We're messy. We're hurtful. 
think about what Paul's describing, a community, a family where there are zero high horses. There are no ivory towers. There's not a got it together club who's fixing the project people. That's not what Paul's describing. Paul is describing a large composite of members, each uniquely gifted, each mutually needing one another. And notice this, needing the spirit of God in one another. I need the spirit of God in you. You bring a reflection, an animation, a manifestation of the spirit of God that I cannot experience without your human presence. This also means, if I can have like two minutes for a really fast aside, is that okay? This means that there is an immediate red flag as soon as we notice Lone Ranger Christianity. Where we begin to believe that maturity means I am now self-sufficient. I don't need the body because I'm so mature I can sustain myself. Maturity does not equal self-sufficiency. In Paul's language, maturity means integration into the body and I need you. It's foolishness in Paul's language to say, oh, I don't need them, they're just a foot. I don't need them, they're just an eye. I've got, I've got all the body parts. <laughs> That's not what Paul's saying. So we can apply this in two really quick and important ways. One, we can apply it, apply it to ourselves. It's easy to accidentally think, well, where do I go to get good teaching? But then I don't really need to belong to the body. Where do I go? Is it the internet? Is it a local congregation? Where do I go to get some, some good experiences so then I can go live on my own? Don't make me belong, don't make me attach, don't make me integrate. This is a threat to Jesus' body, and more importantly, it's missing the gift of belonging to his body. It's embracing loneliness rather than family, as Jesus has solved it. The second application is, well, first is applying it to ourselves in our own perspective. Second is we can apply it to the teachers we listen to. So, Importantly, in our 21st century world, via technology, people can have a platform without having presence in a local body. You can have platform without having presence. So if a teacher wants platform, notice this, if a teacher wants platform without valuing and integrating into the local body with presence, according to scripture, they have no legitimate authority in the family of God. So if someone that we listen to or subscribe to has graduated from the church, they have supposedly progressed from the body of Jesus, and they are in danger. Let's jump back into the text, verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The inference there is no. Verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. He's saying first, second, third roles are legitimately ordered in order. Matthew Henry says this, apostles, prophets, and teachers were all intended to instruct the people, to inform them well in the things of God, and to promote their spiritual edification. 
without apostles, prophets, and teachers, neither evangelical knowledge, meaning accurate gospel, nor holiness, applied gospel, could have been promoted. So he's saying there's a reason here. Now, I, as soon as I read this, earnestly desire the higher gifts, like my ego is like, oh yeah, give me the best, right? What are the highest ones? I want the best ones. And Paul, remember, this is the whole reason he's writing this part of the letter is because of egomaniacs using the spiritual gifts, right? So we need to like take a step back. And then Paul continues to point the Corinthian congregation and you and I at the heart of the gospel and the greatest commandment according to Jesus. He points us to a more excellent way. And it keeps us out of the weeds of ego and of hurt. And it keeps us on the best path while we explore gifting. This is the end of verse 12, or chapter 12 into 13. He ends chapter 12 by saying this. Pursue the higher gifts, but I'm going to show you a better way. I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned in martyrdom, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So not only is this the most excellent way that is more preferable to all gifting, without love, all the gifts are nothing. Not only is it preferable, without it, everything else counts as nothing. Earnestly desire the gifts. Ask for them. Totally. But if we're seeking gifts without first prioritizing genuine love for Jesus' body, we are out of alignment with the Spirit of God. Now, Paul says love, right? Love is the most excellent way, but love can be a little bit hard to pin down. It can be a little squishy. And so Paul does this. He kind of like throws some darts at the wall and he's giving us like, well, what does love feel like when it's in the room? And, and what does love do when it in, is in relationship? And in that way, he paints this kind of mosaic of what love is. He continues in verse four. He's describing, remember, the most excellent way, preferable to all gifting. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, meaning it's quick to give grace. Love believes all things. It's eager to trust God and others. Love hopes all things and endures all things. And golly, what a powerhouse, right? Now, everything that Paul said earlier makes sense. Because anything without that does not matter. Anything without that doesn't matter. What is great teaching and preaching without that? What is a great potluck without that? What is strong leadership without that? What is community service but without that? What are spiritual gifts without that? What are spiritual highs without? What is an excellent church without that? It's a farce. 
It is nothing in the language of Paul. So our highest aim, the most excellent way according to Scripture is that we as the members of Christ, members of the body of Christ, our most excellent way is genuine love. Love for God, love for his body, and for the outsider that's not yet in the family of God. Now, a quick note, if you're reading this and you're like, all right, I'm doubling down, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love, I'm going to love better. I'm going to stop being irritable. <laughs> Great, good luck. So a quick note on pursuing love, okay? Quick note. First, notice in verse 13, it says love doesn't, right? Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist. It's not irritable or resentful, right? So it gives a, list, a long list of things not to do. Now, if you stop doing those things, it's probably a great first step. But we can misinterpret this and just think we need to suppress the bad in order to try harder at the good, right? Just stop being irritable and be nicer. That's what this means, kind of. Now, love, love can exist, notice this, love can exist with mixed emotions and mixed motivations. Genuine love can exist with mixed motivations and mixed emotions, it's really helpful not to shame ourselves for what we are feeling in our mixed emotions and mixed motivations. Here's why. Genuine love requires that we acknowledge, understand, and express the root emotions of the negative things we don't want to do anymore. Uh, you'll notice um, in verse four, love is not arrogant or rude. Now, as a recovering arrogant person, <laughs> I know that underneath my arrogance is a lack of healthy shame and humility, as well as the presence of fear. Underneath my outward arrogance is often a deeper fear of being less than the people around me of being not good enough, of being in lack of humility like them in their messiness, a fear of being in need in a place of weakness. So do I, Trevor, need to remove arrogance and replace it with love? Yeah, totally. But my path is not to just stop acting arrogantly and act nicer. My path to genuine love is to acknowledge my arrogance, to understand its root, and then to express that to God and others. For me, my real, real prayers are often, God, I am so afraid of failing and being incompetent. I am so afraid of being messy. I am so afraid that if they knew me, they would reject me. And because I can place myself into that reality of what is underneath my arrogance, now I get to experience the voice of God. The voice of God that ministers to me through his scripture and through his spirit. And now I get to experience the voice of God that calls me beloved. Not just Christians are beloved, but this arrogant, fearful Trevor is beloved to God. This, God calls this arrogant, fearful Trevor spotless. God calls 
me and my fear and all my mess, his son, that he is pleased, glad to have in his kingdom. And in those quiet moments, my fearful arrogance is now replaced with genuine love from God for me as I presently am. And what that does is in that moment, my soul detoxes. My soul detoxes from fear. And guess how I show up now? Open-hearted and loving. No longer like this, but settled into the grace of God, open-hearted and loving. Because I'm no longer motivated by fear. Now I'm motivated by my trust in God. And so love seeps outwards. So our equation, as we're looking at love, what it is, what it's not, our equation is not stop being this, do better at this. Our equation is to acknowledge, understand, confess what is underneath. Our work is to receive comfort and Trinitarian love from Father, Son, and Spirit, and then choose to pursue love genuinely. Is there discipline in there? Absolutely. Paul ends like this in verse 8. And if you guys have the attention to see this, this is incredible. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for divine knowledge, it will pass away. We know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the day of the Lord comes, all this partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child, meaning in part. I reasoned in part. I thought in part. But when I became a man in completeness and wholeness in the day of perfection, I gave up everything behind me, my childish ways. For now, right now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then in the day of perfection, we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Notice this. God fully knows us right now. And one day we will fully know him in the day of perfection. He finishes by saying, so now faith, hope, and love abide, remain these three. But the greatest of these three is love. Paul has reminded the Corinthian church what their eternal anchor is. This is crazy to me. All the great gifts, great. They're only a tool for right now to build a community of love as the family of God. And that community of love as the family of God will last forever through all of eternity. Everything else is just a tool for right now. If I could apply this in just a couple of really fast things, just a kind of big picture summary, bring it to a few points. What Paul is saying is that Jesus atoned for us in order to make us family. Jesus atoned for us to make us family. We've been baptized into one body. If you wanted to say that differently, Jesus gave us his body to make us his body. Here's four quick ways we can apply that. One, Jesus loves us. And this is so cool. He gave himself for us. He's right now through his spirit renewing and empowering us through a common, shared, single purpose spirit. All of us are being animated, renewed through one spirit for one focus. It's incredible. Second thing we can apply that for is that Jesus loves you specifically. Jesus gave himself specifically for you and he is renewing and empowering you. So when you feel irrelevant, 
or like a burden to your church, remember you are blood-bought, you are dearly loved, and you are an integral, necessary, and valued part of his body. Church, will you receive that this morning? Don't shrug that off. This is the good news of one spirit knocking on your door. Third way we can understand this, Jesus loves them. Jesus gave himself for them. Whoever those people are to you, he is renewing and empowering them because it's so easy to discount those people, people like that. And all of us define that a little bit differently, but remember, it is one spirit redeeming them, restoring them, and making them mature in the image of Christ. We cannot discount them. Thanks, Rick. Lastly, verse four, or, uh, fourth point, that we are Jesus' body. We are a family. Church is not an event that we attend. It is the family that we belong to. And notice this. This current local church family is the present right now gift of the Spirit as well as Jesus' eternal goal. His eternal goal is that a bunch of Christians would be hanging out in heaven, enjoying each other through his Spirit. So why not enjoy it right now, right? If I was going to add a slightly different twist of language just to come at it from a different angle, it's helpful for me to think about Paul's language of need, needing parts of the body, in these two categories. Are we contributing or are we consuming? Are we contributing to the body or are we consuming from the body? Paul's asking this church body in Corinth to stop consuming from Jesus' body and instead contribute to the common good, to the building up of the body in the most excellent thing, love. Three really fast things. One, we consume when we dismiss or undervalue Jesus' people around us. We consume when we live as though we do not need others. And we contribute when we love the real people around us. Not the people we want, the real people. And then, after we love them, we use our gifts. We are forgiven, we are justified, and we are being formed into people of Trinitarian love as a family. Love doesn't exist in isolation. Love is a team sport. Love requires a body. Love cannot be done in isolation. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this crazy design that you've come to resolve human loneliness by bringing us into right relationship with you, completely washing us of sin, bringing us into your presence of love, and then bringing us alongside brothers and sisters with one spirit for your kingdom and each other's good. Thank you for this gift. What a gift it is. Lord, would you shape our church? We are not the full expression of this at all. Would you give us grit and motivation to unmask and identify our lack of love in order to be transformed into loving people together. Lord, would you heal us of our hurts, teach us a new and better way as we stumble through this together. And Spirit, would you empower and call and motivate for one purpose. Amen. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you guys two minutes, a little bit shorter today, of individual reflection. So grab your workbooks. You can journal some thoughts. Ooh, 
There's a great little quote on here. Take a look at that. That's a gift for you. Um, Take a look at that, two minutes, and then I'll come back, do some really fast application, and then I'll give you some community time, and then we'll call it a day. The way we've structured this sermon series is we do this kind of interesting thing we're playing with where we kind of pause and we give you some reflection time and then we hone in real practically on some like specifics. We're going to like really get nuts and bolts and then we give you some community time to discuss it. So here's some nuts and bolts. If we are going to apply 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, go ahead and turn in your personal discipleship plan all the way to the back to page 26. You'll notice there's a header here, community, live as family. I want to point out, um, really, there's three things that I think we could just really fairly take out of this and apply immediately. Number one, if we want to be a strong church, we need to belong in community. We cannot be disintegrated, detached parts. We have to be integrated into the whole. That means belonging with humans in community. Very first section you'll see is a question, how will I commit to engage in biblical community? Meaning, regular participation in Sundays and or joining a gospel community or a DNA, a small discipleship group. So just three simple ways to apply that is one, we need to value and give up, value others. And notice this, we need to be willing to give up independence and ease for relationship. That lets us be known and to know others in genuine love. In this process, it requires learning healthy need, expressing healthy need, and learning how to give and receive in a genuine way. So on that last page, consider how might you commit to healthy gospel-centered community. Uh, Real fast, uh, on the very last page of this workbook, you'll see this little circle. We're going to talk more about this in two weeks, but this lower section's community, you'll see as a church, our more formal ways that we engage in community, you can always like huddle up around the scriptures, man, do that. But if you're looking for something that like we help organize, it's right there. And even if you are huddling up around the scriptures, we'd love to know so we can help invite people into that, right? So let us know. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two, serving with our gifts the ways that the Spirit has designed us and empowered us. So some ways we can think about that. First, we want to use and develop our gifts in partnership with others for service and mission. We need to use and develop them with others for service and mission. And if you're unsure about all the spiritual gifts conversation that was in the chapters today, like just start with something this simple. Start with the skills and the gifts that you know you have. Start there. They're gifted to you by the Spirit of God. <laughs> try serving out. Try different fields. Try different ways of serving. And you'll, you'll like feel your way through gifts. And you'll find out where you are both spiritually effective as well as where you are spiritually enlivened and enriched through your service. A really helpful little phrase if you're trying to figure out, well, where's my next step? There's this great little quote. What you see is what you're gifted in. If you see it, It's probably because you're gifted and called to be there. If you are interested in internal opportunities to serve, you can go to alloflife.church forward slash serve, or you can scan that QR code and do a, uh, like a connect card. That's internal serve teams. If you're interested in external opportunities to serve, would you email us? Hello at alloflife.church. We've got a deacon all about mercy and community engagement, or 
talk with your gospel community if you're one of those or if you are interested. Just say, hey guys, I'm interested in serving. What can we do? It's a great place to start. So one, belong in community. Two, serve. Three, love genuinely. It's as simple as this for right now. Make genuine love of people where they are your number one aim. Show up with that as your goal. Not to fix people. Not to love people once they are, but to love people as they are right now in front of you. Second quick application when it comes to loving genuinely. Identify, are there sources in your life that age you in patient, spirit-driven, genuine love? What in your life aids you in patient, spirit-driven, genuine love? Man, grab it. Hold on to that. Opposite. What sources in your life affect you and make you prideful and discontent? Here's a couple of quick questions moving forward. Don't try to answer all these. I'm just going to read a couple. Pick one or two that like spirit's got its hook in you. Chase it down, okay? Couple questions. Number one, are you disregarding anyone in the local body, a spiritual brother and sister? Two, are you disregarding yourself as invaluable, unskilled, unequipped? Three, are you relationally aloof to the people that you're serving? Are you knowingly cold with anyone? This last fifth one, important. Are you chasing spiritual gifts, ministry skill, theological arguments, platform, even church excellence above genuine love for real people? Last two, who can you partner with to serve the common good and build the church? And last, what is a scary but necessary next step in your conviction from today? You'll notice there's on the very bottom of page 26, an area that needs longer runway. Maybe jot some thoughts down there for bigger picture questions. One thing super practical I might invite you to, next Tuesday, the 23rd, we've got a gospel community workshop on how to live in transforming spiritual relationships. So I invite you to come to that. Again, it's going to be next Tuesday. It's online details, but it's 6 to 8 p.m. So with that, um, I'm going to give you guys, uh, I think, seven minutes today of community discussion. You can work through your PDP or on uh, week five, whatever this was, you can talk through some of those questions. I'll see you guys in seven minutes.